Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Okay, this one's one of my favorites. How many folk singers does it take to screw in a light bulb? How many? Four. One to screw in the light bulb and three to sit around and talk about how much better the old one was. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from folk duo Mike and Ruthie. That'll help break the ice. They've got a new EP out this month. Later, we'll speak with actor Emily Blunt, star of the new movie The Five-Year Engagement. Also coming up, rocker and motivational speaker Andrew W.K. tells you how to party. Kevin Barnes from the Band of Montreal gives you a party soundtrack. And physicist Leonard Mladenow tells you about the party happening in your unconscious. Not how to party till you're unconscious? No, we need these people awake. Too bad. But first, the news. But this is a podcast, so no news, just more fun. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. Later, in honor of this week's Record Store Day, a fine art appraiser gives us a list of records that are works of art. Not the music, the packaging. And later we'll hear the ill-fated history of New Coke. That's also kind of about the packaging. That's true. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long you've been hearing this... The host of American Bandstand, Dick Clark, died this morning. The members of a joint Secret Service military advance party were sent home after an altercation involving prostitution. Tupac's hologram was undoubtedly the most talked about moment at Coachella on Sunday. Now for something you haven't heard, we turn to Richard Lawson. He is a senior writer at The Atlantic Wire on The Atlantic Magazine's website. Richard what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Uh, I'm going to be talking about Dog TV, a new pay service that you put on for your dogs to watch while you're out of the house. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Is that yeah, real? I mean, I mean... It, it's real. It's, it's, it's only $5 a month, but it's eight hours of programming per day, <laughs> all very specially tailored to, for your dog. Really? So it's just pet rescue <laughs> right. and uh, puss in boots. Right, exactly. <laughs> Um, apparently some cameraman went around like filming at dog level height, uh, like a uh, lots of like dot, like things that dogs like, like other dogs, slug, <laughs> slugs moving slowly, apparently or something. Really? Oh. Yeah. I don't know. They what. like slugs? Apparently they, it's, it, that's for the relaxation block. They have like an activity block, which involves, you know, the ocean and waves and surfing and stuff like that. But there's a relaxation one that's. But, but wait, it's only on eight hours a day, which I was assuming is because dogs sleep the rest of the day. Yeah. But then within those eight right. hours, they also have a relaxation block. Oh yeah. It's the full, it's full service. Dogs are lazy. Dogs, dogs need a after a hard day watching TV, it's time to relax. Exactly. The funny thing about this for me is that Disney, the Disney Channel just announced that they are developing a show called Dog with a Blog. No. About a, a, a couple of kids who realize that they're, the family dog can talk and has a blog. So now dogs have a blog. They're on television. It makes sense. Let me get this straight. So cats already run the internet. And so <laughs> right. dogs have TV. That's yeah, true. Exactly. But wait yeah. a minute. If cats dominate the internet, then what happens when Disney launches this dog blog show? Well, oh, we're going to have to watch that develop. I think that's going to be the central conflict of the series. That will be exciting. Yeah. And apparently cats also like dog TV, even though it is expressly for dogs. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's what the guy says that cats watch it, but it's, it is still strictly for dogs. So television for dogs, dogs and cats watching TV together. Right. Richard Lawson, thanks for news from the End Times. Thanks, guys. <laughs> and now, definitely time for cocktails. 
Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our rarely imitated history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1985, a new soda pop made headlines. And not in a good way. No. At least, not at first. Michelle Philippi tells the sour and then sweet story. The world's biggest marketing blunder helped save one of the world's biggest brands. See, back in the 80s, sales of Coca-Cola were, well, flat. Old folks were switching to diet sodas, and young people were switching to super sweet Pepsi. Desperate, Coke decided to change its cola recipe for the first time in 99 years. They called the top secret project Operation Kansas. Months of research later, the company hit upon a new, sweeter formula. Basically, Diet Coke spiked with corn syrup. Sound awful? It wasn't. In thousands of blind taste tests, people loved it. More than Pepsi. Even more than original Coke. So on April 23, 1985, Coke's top brass proudly unveiled their new baby. Old Coke would cease production immediately, they said, and new Coke would take its place. Then they sat back and waited for the customers to roll in. Except they didn't roll in. Instead, they got insanely angry. Crowds at the Houston Astrodome booed new Coke ads off the Jumbotron. Coke HQ fielded half a million hate letters. Don Keough, Coke's president at the time, says one woman phoned him, weeping tears of rage, even though she hadn't had a Coke in decades. Well, I said, why are you upset? And she said, because you're playing around with my youth. Three months later, Coke brought back the old recipe, and sales skyrocketed. Nostalgia for Coke was apparently more important to people than its actual flavor. In fact, the comeback was so huge, some say marketers planned the whole fiasco. To which Coke's Don Keogh says, quote, We are not that smart, and we're not that dumb. So that's the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. I am on the line with Cara Ladino. She is bar manager at the excellent restaurant Miller Union in Atlanta, Georgia, where Coke is headquartered. Kara, you know the history. What drink does it inspire you to make? Well, I decided to take an old approach with this. Since we were talking about new Coke, I thought we'd go old Coke style. Well, that'll certainly make you more popular with most people, I would think. Yes. So I was thinking Coke started out being a medicinal beverage. Oh, right. And, of course, it also had cocaine. So is that an ingredient here? No, but it would be an option as a garnish. (laughs) All right. We will let the audience decide that for themselves. So how do you do it? How do you make this medicinal? You know, there are lots of fun liqueurs out there that actually do have medicinal roots as well, Fernet Branca being one of the more popular ones. But what I did today was what I'm going to call the Pemberton, because John Pemberton was the druggist who invented Coca-Cola. Oh, right. So what we're going to do is half an ounce of Fernet Branca, an ounce of rye, three-quarter ounce of Carpino Antico formula. Uh, which is what? It's a sweet vermouth from uh, the northern part of Italy that is thought to be the, the original vermouth. It's a very nice, full-flavored vermouth. Top that off with two ounces of Coca-Cola. Really? Yeah. What a surprise. And we actually use the Mexican Coca-Cola. We hate that we're right here in Atlanta where Coke is from, but we have to get it from Mexico so it can be made with sugar instead of corn syrup. Although, ironically, it would make sense to use the Coke with corn syrup in it because New Coke had a ton of corn syrup in it. Yeah, but that's just so scary. Is that it? That's it for the drink. 
Um, just a, a little orange peel as a garnish. It kind of brings out some of the nice aromatics from the Coke. Can I ask you, as an Atlantan, are you allowed to drink anything except Coke? Like, does anybody in Atlanta ever sneak a Pepsi or something? There's like a little tiny Pepsi plant down the street that we all laugh at. <laughs> but um, it's all Coke. And Brendan, I, I want to say, just because new Coke didn't work out, uh-huh. it doesn't mean all new things are bad. No, new right? car smell. Pretty well loved. New York City. Also, both excellent examples. Dearly loved. I was thinking about the new cocktail section of our website. Ah. Because that would be nice to hype right now. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, you can now go there and search all of our past cocktail recipes by name or by ingredient. So if you want a gin drink, you just click on gin. And all of the gin drinks are there. It's magic. Head to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, and click on the tab that says cocktail. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. This Saturday is Record Store Day, an annual event where bands release unique, limited-run vinyl records and make them available only at select independent record stores. Lots of folks will buy the albums for the songs, but others will buy them for the artful packaging. So for this week's list, we turn to Brooks Rice, who's an expert on records and art. Hello, my name is Brooks Rice. I'm a fine art appraiser here in Los Angeles, and I'm a I'd say a rabid record collector since the age of 14. I appraise fine art mostly, and we do rare books here as well. But I I also, with my experience with records, I've helped uh, a few clients with their collections. So this weekend is Record Store Day, and here's a list of some records that are great, or at least notable pieces of visual art. My favorite of all is Folkways Records from the 1950s through the 1980s. I think it was late 1940s, Moses Ash created a record label, Folkways, that documented American folk music as well as American field recording. He hired Ronald Klein for the covers, and he, he did, I, God, I think it was over 500 out of the 2,000 released. Ronald Klein, he'd used generally just one image. There's one record called The Sounds of Insects, and it had just this beige sleeve with black text at the top with just a giant image of a fly in the center, and that was it. There was nothing else on the back of the sleeve. There might be a track listing, but there was nothing else, so it was very minimal. I don't think he was considered, at the time, a revolutionary. Still today, like Mississippi Records and these other uh, contemporary labels, they're really taking, I feel like, a lot of his aesthetic. He died in 2006, and there's an exhibition of his covers at a gallery in, in New York. There are also some great 20th century artists who have uh, designed some great record sleeves, like Andy Warhol. The uh, Velvet Underground, the Banana Peel record sleeve on Verve, and the Sticky Fingers Rolling Stone record with the zipper. Interestingly, right now, Andy Warhol's early, more unknown record sleeves are becoming really popular and are quite collectible. Most of them are classical records. They're not his pop art. But you can tell that if you know Warhol's work, you can tell it's his. It's like these line drawings of a woman's shoe or of a cat. Other artists who've done some interesting sleeve art is Ed Ruscha, the famous LA artist. He did a record for Mason Williams, and it's called Music. Plain sleeve, it doesn't say Mason Williams' name, it just reads music, and it's the kind of the classic Ruscha image with just the text on canvas. And I, I, just, I don't really think many people know that it is Ruscha that did that cover. Otherwise, it might also be collector's items, but I'm just not sure anybody knows that it's him. But I guess they know now. 
last but not least, Jack White has, has been doing some really interesting things with record releases over the last few years. Last year, I worked on an appraisal um, of some art and some other items for a client who also had a large collection of uh, White Stripes and Third Man records, uh, Jack White's record label. And I couldn't believe, I mean, as I started doing the research, the White Stripes have only had six proper releases, but they also have, I, I can't, I don't even know the count, but just tremendous amount of 45s. They're, they put out these three-inch records that you could only play on this certain type of turntable that played three-inch records only. It's a turntable that you can only get in Japan. There was a one 12-inch record. You, ha you could listen to the 12-inch, but inside the vinyl was a 45. And in order to hear the 45, you actually had to break the 12-inch. And then you could take the 45 out of it. So it's kind of a gimmicky thing, but it, you know, I think there was only 200 of them made. Once I started looking into these things and looking at what they'd sold for, I was really blown away because I mean, they're just a 45, and it's something that came out, you know, in 2011 or 2010 that sells now for $300, $400. I look for records almost every day, either on the computer or I go to record stores or I go to thrift shops or yard sales. I love it. So I have a garage full of records that my wife uh, yells at me about sometimes. <laughs> Don't want to hear about it. The guest list from art appraiser Brooks Rice. He works at Escher Associates in Los Angeles. Nice. Enrico, I had Brooks take a peek at my record collection. Oh. And uh, turns out it's not worth much. My Disco Duck record. What? Worth nothing. The, what about the Art Garfunkel, though? Also nothing. That's your whole record collection. Yeah. That's upsetting. It's, it was pretty upsetting. Uh, speaking of which, people, after we take a short break, Emily Blunt will tell us about a question that upsets her. I never, ever want to be asked how I like my salmon cooked ever again. We do not ask her that when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, rock and roll's party laureate Andrew W.K. answers your etiquette questions. And in a few minutes, you will hear a man eat a light bulb sandwich. Amazing. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's actress Emily Blunt. She first made a splash in the U.S., as the neurotic senior assistant to Meryl Streep's character in The Devil Wears Prada. An excellent role. She's starred in films like Young Victoria and The Adjustment Bureau. Her latest movie is the Judd Apatow-produced comedy The Five-Year Engagement, where she plays, can you guess, a woman that's been engaged for five years. Whoa. Yeah. Surprising. Recently, I met up with her in L.A., and being the clever conversationalist that I am, I started off by talking about the weather. Emily, first of all, um, it's raining here in L.A., which is unusual. Does this weather make you homesick? <laughs> Everyone thinks London rains all the time. It, it does. It's true. But I do miss London. I was just there seeing my family, and I went and stayed with mom and dad in my childhood bedroom. And it's always really nostalgic and emotional going home because you sort of look at all the photographs of yourself when you were younger before any of this happened to me. And it's just a whole other world now, and it's, it's, it's always really strange and lovely going home. That's actually a really funny scene in the movie. Your character, Violet, returns to her home and is filled with Wham! posters, <laughs> as well as a picture of Sigmund Freud because she's a, a student, a PhD candidate for psychology. What do you have, what, what's on your walls at home? 
I have pictures of myself on like really cheap, bad Brits abroad holidays with my girlfriends to like the Canary Islands or something, you know? Like those kind of booze, they go to, you go to Greece, you go to Spain yeah. and you just party too much. Exactly. And the whole thing costs you like $200 for the entire trip. <laughs> but there were no, no Depeche Mode posters, nothing like that? I did have a couple of boy band pictures. I think it might have been like New Kids on the Block or something. And I, I also, I, I, I loved the Beatles and the Beach Boys when I was younger. You saved yourself. New Kids on the Block. I was, that, was a little, <laughs> that was a little bit scary. Um, you've been doing a lot of interviews. You've been doing this for a while now. We asked this of all our guests, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? I just was promoting a movie called Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. And I never, ever want to be asked how I like my salmon cooked ever again. What does that have to do with the movie? Because they don't know what to ask because the movie has a crazy title and it's a really unique premise and people don't know how to talk about it. And so and in the interview, you have four minutes. And so they just ask these stupid questions like, do you like salmon? Are you a fisherwoman? Why is your movie called that? I mean, it was like those were the questions that I just wanted to kill myself with. Whereas this movie that we're promoting, it's interesting how much better the questions have been. Well, that was very diplomatic of you. <laughs> no, it's true. Well, I'm not going to ask you a question about engagements, even though you did get married to John Krasinski, the star of The Office, while you were making this film. But I will ask you about relationships. Uh, in this movie, your character Violet and her fiancé Tom, uh, who's played by Jason Segel, yeah, you, your characters are both ambitious people, but... When Violet gets accepted to this PhD program in Michigan, uh, Tom follows her. That snow looks nice. Yeah, looks fine. Do you want to roll around with me in it and get weird? You mean like... Yeah! No one's around us getting into Michigan life. Woo! <laughs> Do it! No! Oh! What? Ah! What? My hip, my hip. Oh, my God. I landed on some... Oh, it's a fire hydrant. What is a fire hydrant oh, doing there? Poor old grandpa. <laughs> And he kind of sets aside his career dreams. And I was wondering if you have ever had to sacrifice work for love uh, or the other way around. I haven't, actually. I mean, I think that I think sometimes, you know, you don't want to work as much because you want time off to be normal and be in your relationship. And but I, I don't see that as a compromise or a trade. It's just what I want, you know. If I'm correct, you have four movies coming out this year. So when do you have time off? It's just gross. I, well, it just is not, you can never control when they come out. Like, for example, a movie like Looper, which comes out later this year, I only worked three weeks on it. And you were 16 then. <laughs> exactly. Well, some of the funniest scenes in this film are between you and Alison Brie, who plays your sister. Uh, you guys are very competitive. She's a little bit wilder than you are. Uh, you have a couple of sisters, right? I have two sisters, yeah, and Alison has, has a sister too. So I think we would share stories with each other of how we interact with our sisters. And I think whether we talk about it or not, subconsciously or not, that material gets onto the screen in some way. And Alison had to, you know, do my accent and everything. And that's really hard in itself. And then improv in a new accent on top of it. So she's outrageously funny in this. And I kind of love that... Even though Violet is seen as the one who's a success, she's an intellectual, she's doing well, and she's overthinking this engagement, Allison's character, Susie, is seen as the kind of mess up in life. And yet she actually manages to have a happy relationship and not overthink it and just go with her gut. And yeah. So it's quite interesting how that dynamic shifts between them. In your own family, would you be, what would your adjective be? Like, how would they describe you? Of, of this? <laughs> uh, oh, God probably quite self-deprecating but you're 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 middle you're not the oldest you're this yeah 
I probably am the one who's most emotional. <laughs> really? Yeah, my oldest sister is the pragmatist and my younger sister is the coolest chick ever. And she doesn't emotionalize anything. Um, but I probably am the one who cries most easily. <laughs> Not even at anything, but like if something amazing happens or if I see someone, you know, winning the 100 meter sprint, I'll cry, you know, and they all think. Really? Yeah, I find it so emotional. Well, the 100 meter sprint, that's pretty emotional. It's high octane, you know, it's very high octane. It sounds very British to get choked up over track and field, whereas here in America, I think we'd get choked up over, I don't know, NASCAR. Probably, oh God, who could cry over that though? It's just the noise. Maybe I'd cry over the noise. All right, well, we have a second request we make of uh, our guests on this show, and it is tell us something we don't know, either about you or the world at large? Well, I recently have been starting to scuba dive and stuff. In your free time? In my free time. And dolphins, you know the little squeaks and little things that they call out and the sounds? They're calling out their names to each other. Really? Like they have individual names? Yeah, basically each sound or squeak you hear is their personal name or sound and they call it out to each other and that those are the noises that you're hearing. I had no idea that was going on. And the other thing you should never do is if the dolphin comes to you and allows you to touch the dolphin go for it but if you reach out and touch a dolphin you can actually break up dolphin partnerships because they mate for life they're together for life similar to penguins so if you touch them they it's like it's like they've been cheating on the other one that would be like all over us weekly emily breaks up this dolphin pair in malibu exactly don't touch the dolphins they don't like it that is so so you've really been uh, have you been practicing this quite a bit? I used to be terrified of the ocean as I'm a huge victim of jaws even though it's my favorite movie I'm so scared of sharks. And so I've recently been getting over that and diving with sharks and in beautiful places like Bora Bora and I love it. I find it the most serene existential experience. I love it. So this is a nice counterpoint maybe to your youth uh, drinking in the Canary Islands. <laughs> exactly. Those days are done. Enrico, we're, of course, listening to dolphins. Yes. And before this interview, you probably thought this was soothing background noise, but now we know they're just shouting their names. <laughs> it's selfish, and it's kind of sad. It's not relaxing at all, really, No. when you think about it. But at least we have whale songs. Right? You know, actually, Emily says they're just singing show tunes. Oh. Poorly. Crickets? Hate speech. Yeah. Time to eavesdrop. Jenny Lawson is known online as The Blogess. Millions read her blog of the same name. This week she published her first book. Today we overhear her read a dinner party worthy excerpt. Hi, my name is Jenny Lawson and I wrote a book called Let's Pretend This Never Happened, a mostly true memoir. It is a love story to my family and basically a collection of stories of all the moments that I wished had never happened at the time, but that made me exactly who I am today. Um, it is basically a book about all the ways in which you can mortify yourself. Here's an excerpt called An Open Letter to My Husband, Who Was Asleep in the Next Room. Hi. I know, the weird pattern in the butter dish, right? By now, you have surely discovered it and are probably freaking out. Well, last night, I discovered that if I make Eggos, I can skip the butter knife and just drop the waffle directly into the butter tub. It's awesome. Except that the hot waffle melts a weird pattern in the butter, like an all-yellow plaid, and the plastic tub melts a bit. I know you'd prefer that I use a knife, but I'm trying to save the environment by not dirtying a knife that would have to be washed. 
kind of a hero. Also, the knives are like all the way over on the other side of the kitchen. I mean, I guess we could just switch the utensil drawer with the takeout menu drawer, but that seems like a lot of work. Unless I just pull out the drawers completely and switched them. Okay, now we have two drawers lying on the kitchen floor. I got them both out, but I can't get them back in. I don't know what's wrong with me. Don't look in the butter dish. P.S. If anything, you should be thanking me for the butter texturizer. Remember that freaking ridiculous Burberry plaid car we saw and you were all, wow, I wish someone would do that to my car and or butter. Well, Merry Christmas, P.P.S. I'm so sorry, that was uncalled for. Also, by now you've read this letter and will surely claim that you did not ask me to Burberry the car or anything else, but really, you've got more important things to focus on, like fixing the three drawers on the kitchen floor. I know, but I thought if I took one more out slowly, I could see how it worked, and then I could just fix the others before you wake up. That totally didn't work, but I stopped at three. You're welcome. P.P.P.S. Okay, I thought maybe one more would give me the secret putting the drawer back key. Turns out, not so much. At this point, I'm considering setting fire to the kitchen to cover my tracks, but that would be wrong. I would never set fire to our house. P.P.P.P.S. Okay, I just set fire to the house, but it was totally on accident. I was trying to make you a pizza for breakfast, and I accidentally put a bunch of towels in the oven. I know it seems suspicious since I was just talking about burning down the house, but it's just a horrible, horrible coincidence. I have to think that this never would have happened had our builders not put the bathroom so close to the oven. P-P-P-P-P-P-S None of this is actually true, except for that better part. Aren't you relieved? I know you are. And now you're much less likely to freak out about the butter because, Jesus, it's not like I tried to burn the house down, except for that one time when I did, but that was really an accident and the builder's fault, too, because who the hell leaves the oven instructions inside the oven? This was all just an exercise in perspective. P-P-P-P-P-P-P-S. Don't look in the butter dish. Jenny Lawson, reading from her new memoir, Let's Pretend This Never Happened, a mostly true memoir. You're listening to The Dinner Party. P.S. from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, next weekend here in L.A. marks the 10th anniversary of the Grilled Cheese Invitational. Hallelujah. This is the largest grilled cheese cooking contest in the country. It is being held at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, for crying out loud. Uh They're expecting over 7,000 spectators and competitors cooking in many categories. hear that? So if the air looks yellow in L.A. that day, folks, that's not smog. It's butter. Ew. It's butter smog. (laughs) Anyway, it is now very much a family event, but it started as basically a house party with a cooking competition as the main event. Now, back in 2005, as an intrepid cub reporter, I covered the third annual Invitational. You intrepid cub. Thanks. Back then, it was starting to attract a lot of people, but it hadn't quite shed its loft party origins. Here's the story I produced back then. Hi, this is Tim Walker, uh, organizer, chief instigator for the Grilled Cheese Invitational. Contestants are arriving. Everyone's making conversation and being all friendly, but deep down, there's fear. You can smell it. Pretty soon, the smell of fear will be overcome by the smell of butter and cheese. 
gentlemen, welcome to the second, second annual Grilled Cheese Invitational. Let the grilling commence, and may the best cheese win. My name is Holly Rose Larson, and I am cooking a sandwich entitled Lick It, White Country Potato Bread, Kraft American Singles, and um, Hershey's Chocolate Syrup. My name is Mayor Jim, I'm working here with Tigger and we are recreating Christo's Gates in grilled cheese. I'm Heidi and I've come here from San Francisco, California. What do you call your sandwich? It's the Christo Iberico with uh, jamón Iberico, queso manchego, and I was going to use a, a Venezuelan rum sauce, but we actually drank all the Venezuelan rum, and since it's from Venezuela, we couldn't get any more, so I made it with bourbon instead. I'm Linda Williamson, I decided to start taking cooking kind of more seriously because I quit my job to become a full-time mom and figured, well, if I'm going to be a housewife, I better learn how to cook. And this is maybe a place to test how far you've come? Definitely. And I think I've made a pretty respectable showing for a self-taught cook. I mean, I won the first year. I came in fourth place out of about 60 contestants the second year. and So we should root for you because you represent the American mom? No, you should root for me because my sandwich rules. So there you have it. Number Sandwich number 35, the Gorgonzola Mind Controller, a hyper cheese brain freeze by Linda Williamson. Please find yourself a grill. Yes, okay, excellent. You're grilling. Fantastic. I'm presenting the sandwich to the judges. I'm putting a couple of grapes on the plate so that they can have a little palate cleanse afterwards. I'm cleansing my palate as much as possible with scotch. What in the hell is that? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, there is a sheep made of butter. One of the entries is a sheep made of solid butter. Tim Walker, a.k.a. Captain Shady, is examining it. He's not taking a bite, thank God. I've also been handed a grilled cheese haiku, and it goes like this. Hot cheesy goodness. Mmm, hot cheesy goodness. Mmm, hot cheesy goodness. Thank you. To you, what does the Grilled Cheese Invitational mean? It means normal people taking something mundane and making it into art. I think a lot of people have that childhood attachment to the grilled cheese. Something they didn't get from their mother, a grilled cheese they really wanted from their mom when they were very young, they didn't get. And this is their chance to find that sort of perfection. That's coming from a mom-to-be, so we should exactly. take it. Exactly. I'm nine months pregnant, so that's something I would never withhold from my child, is Wonder Bread and American cheese. I think we've seen the kind of damage that can do. It leads to things like this. Okay, tell us what's about to happen. This guy is about to eat a sandwich with ground-up light bulbs in it. That is the sound of glass, ladies and gentlemen. I don't get it. All right, I get the distinct feeling that um, people have eaten a lot of sandwiches. When people arrived, they were sort of bouncing around. Everyone was crowded around. Now they're just slug-like. There's a lot of smoke in the air. Every surface in the place is just coated with grease. Also, uh, Timothy Walker is drunk. Welcome to the final results of the second, second annual Grilled Cheese Invitational! What's going on, Linda? I came in not feeling super cocky and confident. But I have had a lot of really nice compliments on my sandwich, so we'll see what happens. All right, and in first place, we have Dor Nathan and Sandor Sonnen, the Monty Cheese Mode! 
it's over for another year, I did get an honorable mention, which is better than nothing. Earlier in the evening, it was probably a combination of nerves and having my hands full. I didn't eat very much, and by the time 3 a.m. rolled around, I was actually hungry, and I proceeded to make myself a grilled cheese sandwich. And Tano, the judge, who had eaten 40 grilled cheese sandwiches, joined me, and I split one with him. If there is one person who can truly be called a grilled cheese champion, it's got to be him. How do, what happens to a person after he samples that much grilled cheese? Uh, he wants more. <laughs> the Grilled Cheese Invitational Circuit 2005. This year's event is at the Rose Bowl April 28th, and unlike back then, it is now kid-friendly. Yeah, now that was seven years ago, right? right. So how many of those people are still alive? <laughs> That's what I want to know. Definitely most, not the judge. Most of them, amazingly. Okay. Actually, the woman who was making the sandwich with the Venezuelan rum. I liked her. That is Heidi Gibson. She won a bunch of grilled cheese trophies. She is now the co-owner of the American Grilled Cheese Kitchen in San Francisco. Wow. Dreams come true. That and look, true. you ended up with a radio show where your job is to eat food. That's true. It's amazing. It was the beginning of a lot of careers, weirdly. Uh, it's, it's surprising. Speaking of weird, we've got rocker Andrew W.K. here to answer etiquette questions yep. when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, Kevin Barnes of the band Of Montreal shares his dinner party soundtrack. And coming up, physicist Leonard Mladenau tells us exactly what we want to hear. There's been a recent study that shows that, that gin and other alcohol actually increases your creative problem-solving abilities. I knew it. Yeah. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week our listeners send us their etiquette questions. And here to answer them this week... It's the unstoppable force of positivity named Andrew W.K. In 2001, he put out his debut hard rock album, I Get Wet. It featured songs with titles like It's Time to Party, 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 and here's a clip from Party Hard. But lest you judge this book by its cover, he has since put out an album of improvised piano music. He hosts a Cartoon Network show for kids and has toured as a motivational speaker. And he's universally known to be a pretty great guy. And we are speaking to him from Europe, where he's on tour for the 10th anniversary of I Get Wet. Andrew, it is great to have you. Oh, thank you very much for having me to this dinner party. Are you really universally known to be a pretty great guy? I didn't know that. <laughs> um, no, no. I think maybe <laughs> on certain parts of the world, but not universally. Oh, okay. I see. The universe is a lot of space out there. But uh, I'm making my way. Yeah. This planet is my priority right now. <laughs> it is just a matter right. of time, well, I feel. Well, our audience is on this planet so they'll be happy to oh okay good yeah so again that that first album deals a lot with you know partying and i think it's important to point out you have kind of a whole philosophy about the subject so let us let's start off with a listener question that i think will give you a chance to explain it is that okay oh of course yeah good. so this question comes from lon the question is when one says to party what activity does that imply the process of convivially standing about making light conversation, how would that be different from waiting for a bus or spending time in a doctor's office? What does one exactly do when partying? Well, you can actually do, as far as I'm concerned, whatever you want, uh, as long as it doesn't infringe on my ability or anyone else's ability to do what they want. Now, of course, 
Uh, everybody has what's fun for them. For example, a young baby might like to uh, have a bottle and roll around in a crib. That's a party for the baby. Yeah, but don't put the baby to sleep on its stomach, though. That's um, <laughs> very dangerous. So that's one tip there. Not okay. a party. And then uh, otherwise, you know, a grandmother, she might want to play bingo. She might want to listen to uh, the radio, much like we're doing right now. Um, and someone else might even want to eat pizza until they can't eat any pizza anymore. So it's really... Uh, but the, the point is that you are celebrating being alive and making the most out of it and enjoying yourself. Is it okay to sleep on your stomach after eating all that pizza? Yes. <laughs> Good question. Yes, but only, it depends, again, on how old you are. If you're okay. over the age of one or two years, then I think you can slowly start to roll, maybe start on your side. Otherwise, baby can die. And that's not partying. Dying, no. Uh, that you know, the, the goal really is to celebrate not being dead. <laughs> um, all right, here's our second question. This is from Haley in Brooklyn. Haley writes, I just go through a dinner party with a friend and told everyone we were going all out for food and drinks. On the invitations, we suggested each person contribute $10. We had spent over $200, and it showed. We heard a few grumbles that $10 was too much. Some people didn't want to pay. Did we do something wrong asking for contributions, asked Haley? Well, you know, this, I think, is a bit of a personal preference. If I am inviting people to a party, I would rather save up the money and throw the party for them for free. That's what is such a nice gesture about it. Yeah, that's true. But otherwise, maybe it was just like it should have been like $9. It could have been that extra dollar <laughs> put over the top or, or $9.99. Like, like gas prices. Yeah. Some people really react to numbers and $10 is a round yeah. number. When you visualize it, it looks big. It yeah. seems big coming out of your wallet. Just next yeah. time, put nine ninety nine or nine ninety five. Yeah, I, right. think, I think you're right. Those zeros are aggressive. Yeah. It's four digits as opposed to three. That's all. It's just about pricing. Um, price price perception. All right. So I, I have another question for you. This comes from Charlie from an office in Orlando, Florida, which I think is the opposite of a party zone. But he asks, I work as an assistant in an academic department at a college, and I send out emails to faculty and students requesting information, but they often go unanswered. This is problematic as I often can't complete projects without the information, and it ultimately adds to my workload. How do you ask people to answer their bleeping emails? Asked Charlie. Oh, geez. Um, well, I, I've heard of this happening before. The best thing, I think, is to go right to them in the flesh, uh, show them the email on their computer right there by them, their side, have them sit there, read it with you, then have them make sure they're going to type it. You know, you can even force them to type back, like move their hands across those those keyboards. Like keyboard cat. Yeah, and then you go back to your office and lo and behold, they've written back. Or you could just use your voice since you're standing right there, you know, and communicate with one another. No, that's a waste of energy. All right. Uh, so we have one more question here from Matt, who sent it via Facebook, I believe. And the question is, I uh, hope you have a pencil ready. Five people attend a six-course dinner party. Okay. There are three forks per table setting. Okay. At 7 o'clock, four guests arrive. At 8 o'clock, one guest arrives. Assuming all physical constraints in the universe apply, <laughs> when does the party get going, and when does it begin to party hard? Yeah. Hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've asked this question. No, no, this is a good one. Uh, I'm <laughs> still writing this down. Okay. Diagrams are helpful here. Right. Well, I'm trying to make a pie chart here, and that's... <laughs> 
kind of actually just making me a little bit hungry. Between that and the, the six-course meal, uh, my mouth is watering now. Uh, it's a bit distracting, but it's also motivating. Um, right. Let's see. Well, the party would have officially started the minute that you were born. Oh, right. Um, just cut point. through the BS. So all these people have been partying. Yeah, they didn't even realize it. Yeah. But realizing that you're that you're partying and that you always have been is a huge breakthrough. Yeah. You know, people try to tell you to celebrate on the weekend because you're thankful that Friday's mm. here or celebrate the new year because it was a great time and here comes another year. But if you're thankful for being alive, then you party all gosh darn day. You know, I'm not dead every day. So uh, <laughs> I've been partying nonstop now, 24 hours since uh, the day I was born. And if that isn't good advice for how to behave, I don't know what is. <laughs> Andrew WK, he is on tour right now for the 10th anniversary of his album, I Get Wet. Thanks so much for joining us for Etiquette today. Thank you so much for having me. And this is actually Andrew's improv piano music you are hearing right now. He is a multi-dimensional individual. Yes, and ladies and gentlemen, we know there are also multitudes of etiquette issues out there, party-related or otherwise. If you have a question, you can send us an email via our website. The address is dinnerpartydownload.org. And if we don't write back, you now know to come to our office, walk over to our desks, and point to your email on our computer screen. Please. Or you can just call the Dinner Party Hotline, a.k.a. the phone in my cubicle. It's 213-621-3554. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we talk to someone who knows something that we don't, so if the topic comes up in conversation, we can hold our own. Today our teacher is Leonard Mladenov. He has a PhD in theoretical physics. He's the author of seven books, including the bestseller The Drunkard's Walk. And he has a new book out entitled Subliminal, how your unconscious mind rules your behavior. And I have to say, for some reason, I was attracted to this book as soon as I saw it. And it's it's very subtle. There's this subtle, clear font underneath the title that says, hey, sexy, buy this book. It's our idea of neuroscience humor. This is neuroscience. <laughs> but it's okay to judge a book by its cover. That's one of the things we learned. Like, we're well, going to do it anyway. Well, we learned in one of the things I talk about in this book is how whether or not we intend to, we do judge books by their covers. And, and one chapter is about how we judge people by their covers. Yeah. And even when we try not to and we're consciously attempting to judge them by other things, uh, we're still influenced by people's looks, appearance, many other factors. And we're not even aware of it often. Isn't this something that Freud discovered last century? <laughs> well, Freud popularized the unconscious, and most of Freud's ideas about the unconscious in studies that people have done don't seem to hold water, and he didn't do any scientific studies himself. He analyzed people and inferred from that. Yeah. But what he was right about was that the unconscious is really the dominant force in your behavior and your perception and your memory and the way you judge other people and the way you behave. It's just that he got the specifics a little bit off. So it's not yeah. that we're repressing it or emotionally trying to avoid things as Freud thought, but there are actual parts of your brain that you just can't have no, you have no access to. And so, and then that was the advent of a new machine, the FMRI, right around... A new technique, in the, new technique which, okay. which was perfected in the 90s. And that totally changed the game. Now we can actually watch the areas of the brain light up as they're doing things. Yeah. And, we, and that, that is much more um, insightful. Your book is chock full of fascinating studies. Um, if I may, I'd like to do kind of a, maybe a lightning round, a quick jog through some of these studies. All Any right. game? Okay. okay. All right. One of the studies says taking Tylenol can help with the sting of rejection. <laughs> yes. Well, one of the things that scientists have discovered using fMRI is that the pain centers of your brain 
There's, th there's two components to pain, even to physical pain. One is an emotional component, and one is purely a sensory component. So if you slam your thumb with a hammer, both of these areas will light up. And Tylenol suppresses the activity in both. And so some scientists thought, well, hey, mm -hmm. if you have social rejection, maybe that lights up that emotional component of pain. And indeed it does, because we're really social animals. Above all, uh, one of the things, I, one of the messages of my book is that humans have evolved to be social animals. Mm -hmm. So they gave people Tylenol, they subjected them to a circumstance of rejection, and they tested to see what happened. And they looked at their brains, they found that indeed these, these pain components of social rejection didn't light up. Yeah. And then to confirm that, because that's just a lab study, they actually had people go out with diaries and record events and, and their feelings. And when one half of them were taking a placebo, the other half were on Tylenol. And they found by analyzing the diaries that indeed the people who were on Tylenol felt less, uh, felt happier, had less social rejection. That's incredible. I've been c conducting a similar study with gin, actually, for oh, yeah. about rejection. Well, then there's been a recent <laughs> study that shows that, that gin and other alcohol actually increases your, your uh, creative problem-solving abilities. So, wow. See, this and there was a, a very famous physicist who used to always work with a bottle, I don't know if it was gin, but a bottle of booze at his side. Huh. Yeah. Um, so a, a couple other studies. Touching a person briefly can make you more attractive to them. That's right. Well, <laughs> there was a study that was done in, of course, France, which yes. is famous for its wine, its uh, romance, and its food. And, and it's they, touching. They, and it's touching, apparently. <laughs> and they had uh, volunteers, very handsome men, go out on a street corner in northern France uh, at, at, at a plaza and proposition women. They also had the same script. It was a very scientifically controlled romance. Of course, right? of course. Hey, my name is Antoine. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you look beautiful. Uh, I would love to get to know you better, but I got to run to work. Uh, can I have your number? Yeah. And, and half of them would, would include in this proposition a very brief half-second or one-half-second se touch on the, on the shoulder just as you, know, as, as you might do as body yeah. language. And that doubled their acceptance rate. So 10% of the women gave numbers when they didn't do that, 20% when they did. So because we're all wired as social animals, touch is very important to us. We can see it in the primates. And we've even discovered that there are special nerves that seem to be included in our body just for social touch. They they're not good touch. enough. Yeah. They're not fast enough. They're not specific enough to help you feel what you're touching or to help you in that way that other um, touch perception does. But yeah. they're there for social touch. So this sounds ridiculous, but I mean it genuinely. If we kind of discover how the unconscious mind works completely, the more we learn about it, the more it becomes our conscious mind. And then how will that change us? One of the aspects of the unconscious, one of the qualities is that you, you don't really have control over, over it. I would say it would make us more evolved people. Okay. And that's a good thing. Writing this book, how, if at all, has it changed the way you move through the world? Well, it, 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 it changes the way I view myself and others because I, I'm often more understanding of other people yeah. because I know what's affecting them. I, if someone is upset from something else, I know it can affect them now and that maybe they're not upset with what's going on now and it's lingering from something else. And it just gives me a greater understanding of how other people behave in, in, in social situations. And do you eat a lot more Tylenol and touch people more now? <laughs> uh, well, I've always been a, a touchy guy. You know, that's just my very much many gestures. Yeah. And the Tylenol, you got to be careful because you got to watch your liver. If you want to do the gin cure, you got to right. go easy on the Tylenol cure. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll, I'll choose between the two. Yeah. So, Rico, as you heard, Leonard's book is filled with fascinating studies. For sure. But honestly, the most dinner party worthy thing I learned from him, yeah. he used to write for the TV show MacGyver. No. Yes. Man, <laughs> I bet dropping that at a dinner party is more powerful than human touch. That's right. That's right. 20% more fanboys flock to him when they find out that, that amazing. he was the duct tape guy. 
All right, we've learned good manners, got schooled in science. There's just one element remaining for a fine weekend dinner party, some music. Here with suggestions is Kevin Barnes, leader of the band Of Montreal. They launch a European tour this week. Kevin is known for brilliant, unpredictable pop music, which sounds like this. That's a song called Dower Percentage. Here's Kevin Barnes with some suggestions of other people's music. Hey, this is Kevin from the band of Montreal, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. Distant lava, lava, the first song well, would be Distant Lover by Marvin Gaye. I think that would be a nice mood-setting song, you know, for people walking in the door and said, all right, it's going to be this kind of party. It's a pretty sexy song, yeah. I could have picked something like Let's Get It On or, you know, something that may be slightly more commercial or whatever, but I've always loved the sort of pleading nature of the, the vocal performance and it just feels really genuine. So yeah, I think the party would be both sexy and schizophrenic. As I move on in my set, you'll see that it has a sort of schizophrenic quality to it. (laughs) Schizophrenic sexuality. Uh, Number two, I thought like Motley Crue's Live Wire. I think that record came out in the early 80s, maybe even 1980. That was their first album. I mean, when I was younger, that was like my favorite record, and I sort of forgot about it for many years, and then within the last couple of years, I sort of rediscovered it, and all, I pretty much like every song on the record. It's not even a guilty pleasure, like I just genuinely like it. Something about their sense of fun, but it's not just stupid hair metal necessarily, you know, like the chord progressions are, are pretty interesting and lyrically, of course, it fits the genre, but there's something about that first Motley Crue record that really captures the excitement of being young and, uh, you know, that your early taste of freedom and, and liberation. Um, well, number three, I was thinking something really heavy, Penderecki's Threnody for the Victims of uh, Hiroshima. Number one, that's one of my favorite compositions ever. And it's one of those compositions that when you hear it, you can't really pretend that it's not happening. It just takes over the environment. Well, I wouldn't think I'd necessarily stop the party. I mean, a party could be any number of things. You know, it doesn't have to just be lighthearted and superficial. You know, it could be a meeting of the minds in a way, you know, and actually, hopefully, people feeling like they're gaining something, you know, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, or whatever. I mean, when I was thinking about this party, I'm not really thinking about something completely vapid and, you know, just everyone getting drunk or whatever. I'm thinking of it more of an experience, a bunch of people 
hopefully learning from each other. A dinner party soundtrack from Kevin Barnes of the band Of Montreal. They're on tour now. This weekend for Record Store Day, they release a split 7-inch single with the band Deerhoof. And that's the dinner party for this week, folks. We hope you had fun and learned something. Yes. Jackson Musker did. He's our assistant producer. Thanks also to Ravi Carmen, Jeff Peters, Peter Clowney, and our friends at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace. Bon appétit.